This is Scott Morey, and this is the RE Insight podcast series sponsored by GPG Advisors. And we're honored today to have Mark Rose, who is the CEO um, of Avis & Young, which is a great story that we're going to go through. And if I read online correctly in the statistics, I mean, I know your rapid growth we'll talk about since you've been part of that firm. But I believe today you have an excess of 2,400 professionals, uh, 79 plus offices. I think your revenue at the end of, tw of last year actually was somewhere just over you know, half a billion U.S. dollars. And I think it's a great story. Now, having said that, Mark, I know you and I met years ago. Uh, you've had this amazing background and trajectory, I think, career-wise. And what I'd like to do is go back, way back, actually, because I know and believe you graduated high school at the age of 16, uh, which is quite early for most people. But I'd love to go back. I, I believe you grew up in New York, and if you could share kind of where you grew up and, uh, and talk about high school and talk about sort of initially graduating at 16 and, and we'll go into college after that, that would be great. Sure, happy to, Scott. Well, first, thing, first things first, my, you know, my upbringing was just incredibly normal, right? Um, Queens, New York, little neck to be exact, and uh, the youngest of four sons in a family with a homemaker mother and a woodworking father. And, and you know, your family instills in you, you know, the values to commit to school, uh, to commit to doing right by people and working really hard. And I was the beneficiary of parents who had that belief system. And also, as the youngest of four boys, you make sure that you probably work a little harder. Uh, because you're never heard unless you do. And so it was, you know, in many ways quite traditional and um, a, a very happy childhood, um, you know, growing up at that time. In terms of being in high school or in Canada, as we say, grades 9 and 10, 11 and 12, uh, that, that was interesting because when you're in... 10th grade and my high school started in grade 10, and you're 13 years old when many other people there, including, you know, obviously the seniors are 18. That's very different. Um, that was, uh, I, I would say, difficult. I'd say uncomfortable. I think it teaches you to grow up, uh, probably matured a little earlier in terms of one's thought process. But on the other hand, Physically, you're incredibly immature to the rest of the individuals attending school. And very honestly, I mean, I loved graduating and entering university at 16. Uh, but if I had a chance to do it all over again, being a 13-year-old in high school, um, it, 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 it was, you know, it was pretty difficult. It's very difficult socially. And you know you just aren't like anybody else. But uh, you know on the uh, you know on the glass half full side, you either adapt or you get crushed. And I think that you know it forced a little bit more of the adaptation to make sure that you find your place. You know you, you know you know at that time. Um, but it was um, it was a bit of a challenge. 
And when you went, because you went to Queens College, were you, did you move into the dorms or move out of the house? Or, you, or is it sort of you started in the house and got out? Or what happened actually there? Well, no, it's an interesting story. Because I was only 16, my parents really insisted I stayed local. And, you know, the City University of New York, the Queens College campus, you know, was excellent in, in the, you know, a delivery of education, especially around accounting and finance, and it was local. And my parents were, were you know, were pretty adamant that I, that I wasn't ready yet to go somewhere. So I started at Queens, uh, started well, stayed there, enjoyed it, um, you know, became part of the hockey team, which was pretty important to me. Yes, I was 16, and in my freshman year, you know, I was 5'10", 160, uh, but then one year later I was 6'2", 230. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that in and kind of in and of itself was a big change, but being part of, you know, the ice hockey team, you know, at Queens, being part of, uh, you know, the water polo team there, that it was something that I enjoyed along with the campus, along with what I was being taught, and so um, there was no reason to look anywhere else. You know, it ultimately led to my getting involved in the political process, and I was one of the leaders of a, a political party uh, called United People that really from the time, you know, I ran in my, uh, in my sophomore year, uh, I, I think I think we went something on the order of 25 or 30 straight years of never giving up a seat in the you know in in the Senate at our school. So um, yeah, we had some great times there. You played water polo, did you also or not? I did. Yeah, I did. And at the same time, were you doing both at the same time, or water polo come later? No, no, I started, well, I started uh, but couldn't keep up both sports. Actually, my oldest brother was the head swim coach of St. John's University, and my second oldest brother was, you know, a very good water polo player. I had a chance to play, you know, in different tournaments, and, um, you know, I started off, you know, you're 16, you're coming into college, you know you're going to play ice hockey, uh, the coach of the water polo team was a friend of my oldest brother's and said, you know, why don't you play? You were kind of born for it. But somewhere around October, it just, it, it was way too much, you know, to study, to learn to have a social life, trying to play both sports. And I gave up water polo and just concentrated on, you know, on ice hockey, which was really my passion. Gotcha. And then graduating from Queens College, your degree was in, it was in accounting, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, you know, it's interesting because I went there, the programs that they have for accounting, and, they're, you know, they're known for it at, you know, at Queens College, and, and uh, started to take some pre-law classes. And my last semester was actually an internship up at the state legislature in Albany. And, you know, although I had the accounting background, which is great for, you know, you know for any element of business, I, I really did think until that, that internship that I would move over to law and being up in Albany and seeing the behavior of how laws actually get passed, meaning most of them get passed on the last day of session, and the behaviors of 
certain senators and representatives, and it soured me a little bit, you know, on the law side, and and really kept me going or pushed me more towards the accounting side. And then was your was your first job at? I know you were at Helmsley Enterprises for a while. Was that your first job, or did you do something in between? No, no, actually. No, I, I actually worked at Eisner and Lubin. I was offered okay. you know, an opportunity to join Eisner and Lubin. I was offered an opportunity to join Price Waterhouse. And again, just kind of building on a similar thought process, I was still very young, right? You're graduating at just, you know, almost 21. And, you know, you head out there. And I, I chose the smaller pond. Uh, to be, you know, to be a little bit of a bigger fish, and sometimes, and sometimes you just get lucky, right? Many other people would have gone the Price Waterhouse route, but Eisner and Lubin had a number of prominent New York real estate firms. Helmsley Enterprises was the largest client, and I had the opportunity to work on some of the Helmsley companies. But I had great fortune with the partner that I was working with. Um, you know, to work on Harry and Leona's personal financial statements and their tax issues. And uh, that was really quite interesting. And then to find out later on what Leona Helmsley did, you know, inside her corporation for, you know, again, life, uh, life lesson, you know, 101. But... Uh, you know, I, I spent 12 out of 12 months on Helmsley accounts as well as several other clients who were public in real estate in nature. So it, it was really quite an education for me. No, it's, a, it's amazing. Now I want to, I'm going to shift gears and it's related though in some ways is I believe it was at Helmsley that you met Jim Bosey, if I pronounce his last name correctly, who you have talked about before as being a great mentor early in your career. So I want to I talk about that relationship. And of course, of course, excuse me, one of the questions I, you know, I talked about before was sort of understanding what mentors you've had in your career and what role they have played. And I know certainly Jim is someone you've mentioned in the past. And I'd love to learn more around how you met him and the dynamics around that and how over the years, because I know you then went from later on joined him at Pan American Properties. I think he was chairman at the time. Um, and you rapidly sort of grew up in the ranks there, actually, the CEO, and then I think eventually you got sold off. But I'd love to understand that relationship, if you could expand on it. Well, not sure you have enough time for this, but we're going to try. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, it's something that, whether it's my children or any of the active mentees, because uh, I, I have today almost 20 active mentees, that I, I have to impress upon that there is no better education, there's no bigger blessing than to have someone who will take the time to, you know, to be a mentor. Now, Jim, and, and his last name is Boise, but Jim uh, was the vice chair of Morgan Guarantee, right, so one of the, the, you know, the parts of what's now J.P. Morgan. And he, he had mandatory retirement, I believe it was at 63, and he went over to, you know, to work with Harry over at Helmsley Enterprises. And I knew him, you know, I would run into him and, you know, in the halls in the building. But didn't really know if I would ever work with him. I just saw him and, you know, he was 
a fairly senior, well-known exec. You know, I mean, this is a guy that when the Hunts tried to corner the silver market in the 70s, a Paul Volcker called him to help uh, participate out billions of loans in the morning to help the market stay afloat. And it turns out that when I went over uh, to Pan American, Jim was on the board. And, you know, honestly, the first thing that he did was to give me some credibility that here I am, you know, I'm 23, and I was brought over and I'm sitting in, you know, the board meetings really as a controller at that point, having come over to take a quasi-public company fully public. And having joined in August of 1987, we were right in the middle of the process uh, to go public. And uh, our CEO at the time, she took a, a two-week vacation that extended our offering date past what is now you know, the crash of 1987. But to be at the board table and to have someone treat you like you're a person, and trust me, there were a few board members that you know, weren't quite sure of somebody that young being in the room. But Jim was, you know, you know, absolutely incredible in that regard. And then as we started to do a little bit of the work post, you know, bailing of the IPO, you couldn't take a company public after the crash in 87. And we went into asset management mode. It was very clear to see that we had a billion dollars of real estate across an ocean on the half of the pensioners of the British Coal Pension Funds. And we were yielding probably 3% at that time off of that value. We need $50 million at CapEx. So having had the idea and working with Jim to say, you know, you know, to communicate back to the trustees that it didn't make any sense. And oh, by the way, we were seeing trouble. Things were too frothy in the markets in the U.S. And we made, you know, we made the pitch that they didn't belong owning billion dollars of assets over here, not in real estate, not in illiquid assets, you know, because it really didn't match to the pension funds objectives at that time. And oh, by the way, your own currency, the gilt, was yielding 13 or 14 percent risk-free, and this was yielding three. And that created a moment where Jim is my chairman. You know, because at that time, you know, he went as a board member to chairman, and I had moved up to become the CFO at that point. And have, you know, having written this document that we really should sell the company, that 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 you can imagine the balance of management, including the CEO who hired me, didn't think that was a very good idea. But it was, and we had conviction, and I think that. That was the moment, really, when Jim went all in on saying that, you know, I'm going to invest my time in you. And I believe that, you know, I never had this conversation with him while, while he was still alive. But, I, you know, I, I think he had other mentees, but I just know that he was, you know, instrumental, monumental in my career. Really, first the faith and confidence, and then it was really after that that you begin to see why people who have come before you have forgotten more than you know. Um, there was a situation where we were successful and the trustees did agree to sell and we were able to sell all of our retail assets and all of our office assets in 1989. And mm -hmm. you know, the British Coal Pension Funds 
uh, asset managers became top advisors in the UK because we rid them of the exposure to you know, you know, US real estate in 89 at the absolute peak. But you know, there were different examples, different you know, events where after announcing a sale and closing and we needed the team you know, to stick around to close things up, but people have lives and they need jobs and, and they, you know, they said that they were leaving. And, um, you, know, you, you, know, you know, you're young and you panic a little bit. And he was a setting force to say, folks will do what they have to do and you can't stop them. And oh, by the way, everybody's replaceable, quite frankly, no matter who it is. And it, it was at that moment then you realize that, okay, somebody's done this before, somebody's seen this before, and it gives you the confidence to be comfortable with the situation, that anything's thrown at you that you will fix. I would also say that probably the most, and I, I, I have been quoted I, so many times saying this, it, it will ne I, I will never forget that in one of our many late afternoon conversations when I would ask him, so what do I need to do here? And he said, there's really one thing, here's your job. It's your job to teach everyone around you to be so good that they become better than you. He said, and the leverage effect of treating people that way and the returns from believing in this that it is your responsibility to make people better, that that pays back for the individual far more than the traditional behaviors that you may see in the business world where people are a little more out for themselves or they may be scared to impart wisdom. And I can never pay him back uh, because for the rest of my career, and you know, it's over three decades now, that when you do right by people, when you put their interests first, um, I think it's the best moral compensation that, that you can ever receive. But it also happens to be some of the best returns on investment because people will follow you up that hill. Yeah, and you've, you've shown true, you're right, all the way through the three decades. And um, I think the company... And what you're doing now, you're you're taking that to a whole other level as well. Let me. I understand. Sadly, Jim passed in um, 2013, and he sounds like it was someone that was you were involved with in some capacity through your entire career. Were there other people like Jim that were part of your life and have been part of your life in a similar type role? You know, it, it's so funny. Uh, so I, I actually received a request to answer this question. Uh, yesterday, and you know, it takes that moment because you focus in on the person that has the greatest impact in your life from a business perspective. But but but, but I really have to tell you, there have now been one is easy, and she was there from the start, and the other are you know you know obviously the people who are part of Avis Young right now. But I really do have to start with, you know, I was married at 23, and you're in New York, and you, you, you know, you have a new wife, and you're in public accounting, and you have to make a decision because you're going to leave something that you just joined to 
be part of something that's a bit of an unknown, a real estate investment trust, all the way through starting my own company after I was able uh, to sell off all of the British coal funds that took through you know, the last asset, which was the Watergate complex, it was complicated and took until 1993, to then start my own company, to then realize that as well as it was going, that really wasn't me. I'm more of a big company person to sell to Jones Lang Wooden, to then be part of the deal team to create Jones Lang LaSalle, coming from the Jones Lang Wooden side, to then, um, you know, in 2005, deciding to, you know, to leave, even though I was a very senior exec, you know, at Jones Lang, being the first person who has ever left the senior management ranks at JLL to run another competitor, but to take over Grubbin Ellis, you know, to fix that company, to raise $100 million, put it back on the New York Stock Exchange, bring in 400 new people. The stock went from, you know, from 4 to 14. And, you know, and that's before Avis and Young. And, and, and the one constant and, and the one relationship that lasted 30 years and, and, and our anniversary uh, was just last month, our 30th anniversary, was my wife, who really has been the rock and the strength because not everyone would put up with moving from, you know, one or two companies to grow these companies, to have children but be on the road, be in foreign countries, travel as much as I have, and you really have to have quite a relationship. And that partnership, and I look at her as being a rock and in some ways being that advocate, that mentor in terms of it's okay, you have a passion for this, as long as you make sure that you're home for all major events for, you know, the kids myself as well, that, you know, that you should pursue this. And I'm not sure everyone has the opportunity to have a rock-solid partner in your career path, your life path, to allow, to allow this to happen. So I, I think she's, quite frankly, even more valuable than, you know, than any mentor. But, you know, when people ask the question specifically about business mentors, you know, it's definitely Jim. You know, and finally... Well, well, Justin, you know, say one last thing. But finally, when you do engage in enterprise building in a partnership structure, the ability to work with the extraordinary partners at AY, we started with 53, we're up to 400. And I would be completely contradicting my belief systems and what I'm able you know, to talk about on panels and articles if I didn't say that that you learn something every day from your partners. And that's just another part of it. No, it makes, um, it makes complete sense. I, I believe, too, talking about your wife, Allison, you actually met when you were, I think you were 18, working in the same grocery store, which is just amazing. And it is a great, uh, another great story. You, you, you have a whole list of great stories. What's, what's interesting, actually, is if you took any one of the things, in my opinion, any one of the things that you have done, for a lot of us, that would be our define, you know, defining moment in our careers. And, and you seem to keep doing one after another after another. And they're not equal. You keep, in my opinion, the bar gets raised every time. 
what you did at Grub was amazing, right? I remember talking to you then. And even more amazing, when I saw you go to Addison Young, I'm like, okay, here, let's all watch it go again, right? And um, I mean, it's unbelievable. And I know you're just getting started, which is even the more interesting part. So but let's take that further and I'll shift gears a little bit more on the business side about kind of the broader market from, from, a comp- from an enterprise standpoint. You look at Avis and Young within the market, and not talking about competitive or where you stand, but just sort of how are you navigating this landscape and this company? And then, you know, if you go out five or ten years, where, you know, where do you see this? Well, well it shouldn't surprise anybody that when you have had a chance to write strategies, right? You know, as I mentioned, we wrote a strategy to tell a pension fund across the ocean, you know, to sell us out assets and put yourself out of business, right? That's the right thing to do. Um, to then know whether you belong owning a little company or being part of something big and writing a strategy there, all the way through to, you know, my JLL days when I had a chance, you know, to write and lead some of the strategies post-merger, you build what you believe in. And it goes back to the experiences that one has that I had with the previous companies. And and I'm dead serious about this. You know, you have to connect the dots. You start out young. You have to fight harder. You're the youngest of four. You sell a company. You, you, you see what went right, and, and you see what went wrong. And very honestly, you know, the merger, being at the table on March 11, 1999, the merger of Johnson Wharton, my side, with the South Partners side, to create Jello. This was a global company, and you knew, because I'd spent time you know, in other countries with JLW, that something was missing in the culture of understanding that a merger of equals, that no one wins. You actually want to build a company that has its own, you know, history and its, you know, its own value system. And, and it was many of those, both positives and negatives, that then allowed one to take on Grub. And that was a crazy two and a half years um, to then take you to, you know, to Avis and Young, where you saw this Canadian company with incredible potential. It was probably sixth or seventh in market share. Extraordinary, well-trained people, but by being owned in four separate ownerships, province by province, that they weren't quite able to achieve you know, the heights that, you know, you know the, that they could. And, you know, when I started talking to them, they mentioned that they had been trying to merge for, you know, for nine years and very, very difficult since they were friends. They really all, many of the leaders worked at the same company, Knowlton Realty, and they just couldn't bring themselves to deal with the last few topics usually around economics. And so, so, so it really took an outsider. But what we were able to do here was really the following. That the world needed a global full-service firm that actually was really global. And as you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, the United States of America. 
But at the time, most of the companies were headquartered just in the U.S. And some of those behaviors, some of the, the structures were public company structures. Now they're all public companies. We're, we're the only ones by ourselves. And folks, you know, are quick to mention at that point, you know, Fishman Wakefield is still private. Well, it is and it is and it has public debt. So they report and therefore the structure. Oh, it's always about structure. It's always about culture. And that well, what we were able to do, what, what sat in front of one was, okay, any new enterprise would love a space that it could differentiate. So having a privately held, principal-led, global full-service company was something that felt right to realign the long-term view to client solutions. There were wonderful people at every other company. So this is by no means a knock against anyone else. They are fine professionals working for fine companies. The difference here was understanding and innovating through structure. That if we made the senior talent owners and aligned them with clients operationally, financially, and reputationally through a principal-led, principal-owned structure that is accountable to their clients, who can take a 10-year view and not have to worry about 90-day incremental reporting, that something very special could, could happen. And along with that, you've seen us do a few things. One, the company is headquartered in Canada not just because the company that was the beginning of the platform was in Canada, but we were going to hold a World Series and actually invite the world. And so having it headquartered outside the U.S. was extremely important to us, making sure that countries and cultures feel comfortable that we're going to take a broad view, also understanding that country by country, we operate differently. Subcultures are different. And, and by the way, the public companies, the, full, the largest of the full service public companies, they know this. But the structures are less capable of actually delivering. Well, go, going back to the short-term view, there was a great article in the Harvard Business Review, I think, or somewhere I read a while back. And when you go back three or four decades, you talk about the obligations of a public company and the board and the officers, actually the term they would use then, it was about the stakeholders, which wasn't just the shareholders, right? It included the employees and the partners they worked with and the suppliers and tenants and customers and everyone else. It's really been over the last two, maybe three decades where it went from stakeholders to shareholders, which then took us from this long view to this short view of the world, right? Which is what you're talking about. So it's interesting. Well, well you know, if you think about this, and we have an opportunity because of the structure, obviously, to talk about this, but, you know, if you think about a stock that you may own, and Scott, I know that, you know, that, you know, that you know a lot of people, but if you look at, you know, Apple, I doubt that Tim Cook has invited you into his boardroom and discussed strategies of what he wants to build. If you own Apple shares, your only relationship with Apple is you want to fire up your computer or look at your handheld and hope that Apple moves up a dollar or two or three a day. So why would that be any different 
than the shareholders of the public companies who we compete against. Mm-hmm. Their objectives are rising EPS and rising share prices, mm-hmm. not a delivery of best practices. Mm-hmm. And so, so we believe by taking that longer-term view, that private structure being led by its principles, pushing equity out to all employees in the company because our equity is open to every employee in the company. We have taken what was an 11 office Canadian headquartered, 293 person, 53 partners, $40 million at revenue and a couple million dollars of profit. And we are now up to six countries, 82 offices, 2,600 employees, over $600 million of revenue, and over $50 million of EBITDA. And it comes from the structure. The structure has allowed us, what I'm most proud about, is the structure married with culture. We'll be able to continue this. So you ask the question, there, well, there's no reason why in the next few years we're not going to hit a billion in revenue and then a billion and a half in revenue because human resources in this industry want to be recognized. They want to benefit from the growth. They want their voices heard. They want to have a vote. They want to have the input. They want to put their imprint on something and look at it and say, I was part of that while we deliver industry-leading service to our clients and customers because we can, because we're involved. And so when you look at this, the structure and the culture of partnership and of innovation, this has really allowed us to, to grow. And very honestly, the runway is very, very long in front of us. Yeah, and I can agree more that the structure, both balance sheet level and structure related to what you've done with your employees certainly is going to position you for that in a number of different ways. Let's go a little bit further deeper, I think, on you talk about culture, and and you've talked about it a couple of different ways um, today with me and then, you know, prior and stuff I had read, but talk about the values, like let's say I'm I'm trying to find a way to work with your company and and want to be a you know valuable member and have you guys hire me hypothetically, of course. Um, what values do you look for people? Like when you're looking whether at whatever level, entry level, someone out of college or someone that's been in the space for two decades, you're obviously looking for a very specific profile or certain components or characteristics of those individuals. What what are those? So I'm going to start with the one negative and then, and then I'll answer your question. Imprinted everywhere in our strategy documents, our goals and objectives every year, articles, on and on and on, we have something called the NAR. And the NAR is the no-asshole rule. And every person existing or someone who would like to apply to work at Avis and Young, or if there's a professional that wants to move over from a competitor to Avis and Young, they are viewed against the NAR. And I cannot tell you how many, I mean, very successful in revenue, 
very successful. Our professionals have asked about us, have asked to meet with us, that we either wouldn't take the meeting or, after taking the meeting, make it very clear that you're interested in succeeding on an individual basis. You're interested in, in succeeding individually that might actually hurt one's clients or your partners. And you, you cannot be part of this. There was one conversation with someone that I served on a board with who is a, you know, a leader in a production in one of the major cities in this country. And he said, listen, Mark, I'd really like to sit down. And I said, you know what, I, I, you know, I love serving on the board with you, but you will never be invited in here. Mark, do you know how much money I make? Like, I don't care if you made that times two. You're an asshole. <laughs> and you violate the NAR. We, we, we are a company, but that's one second, but we are the only company that we know. Like, we cannot come up with another example. Yeah. We are the only company who has terminated not one, but two number one producers. And we're only nine years old because the way to becoming a top producer was hurting other people. And we said, this matters. And the most amazing part about this, you know, with the first termination, five clients called the next day and, and asked us, what took you so long? Hmm. The other amazing act was it was a shot heard around the world in the company and our people said, I guess we really are going to care about culture. You know what, I, you've given me an acronym I wish I had because obviously I work for a tiny firm and I'm in a different space in the scheme of things, but it was in a stuffy but very important deal we were chasing and we were with the executive team and I tend to swear a lot and I was doing really good and at the end of the meeting they said, what makes you guys different? And without hesitation out of my mouth, said we don't have any assholes. And then I felt awful after the meeting, and I was swearing, and you know we're trying to abide by the same thing. But you're the first person I've heard say that, and I like the uh, acronym of the NAR. So it's funny. It's true. Though. Well, and you know what? Our private equity group, you know, when they first saw it, they said, "Well, you, you know, you can't write that." Like, well, no, no, of course we can. This this is one of those <laughs> meaningful measurements we have because it doesn't matter how much money you make. Yeah. It matters how you behave. And that's, how, that's, that's why we're so successful, because our partners in this company, they talk to each other. They collaborate with each other. And when a team approaches a client's needs, or, or even before the needs of the client, approaching the clients from a business development point of view, when you do it as a team that all resources are then available to a client, that team approach has a, really can't lose. Yeah. We're going to run out of time here pretty quick, and I don't want to hold you longer than, than we're supposed to. I've got a couple more questions. But one is, um, given your career and given what you know today, if you were to give yourself advice, so when you were 21, graduating from Queens College and coming out and, and starting to work, what advice would you have given yourself then? I would say that this advice, and I, I, 
I can't tell you how many things that I would say to a 21-year-old anyone. Uh, you know, mainly because I do it all the time. But very recently, over the last year or two, we have made incredible strides in changing the lives of our people through through wellness. And the stories are amazing. We have people who have lost 93 pounds, 80, went from not being active to participating in walks, half marathons, marathons, Ironmen. We have people who understand that wellness is, is the foundation of your ability to be a good person and a very successful performer. And I don't think young people know this. I know I didn't. And there was a period of time that I let myself, you know, you know gain 60 pounds and stop playing hockey and really, quite frankly, stop being active. It was about the businesses and traveling. And it's, a, you know, a much longer story, but on March 18th of 2014, said enough's enough and went from being a obese person to losing 60 pounds to double my sleep to ultimately run in a half marathon, do a triathlon, and it's invaluable. You think it's about learning a trade, which people can do. You think about culture. I think you either you have it or you don't. But right now, wellness and particularly mental wellness, which I put under the banner of whole wellness or whole health right now, our young people need to concentrate on this because this is a very stressful world, whether it's the politics of the day, whether it's what you think people want of you, what your parents might have asked of you, the competition, the amount of information that's, you know, that's available every second of every day through social media. We are watching our young people just get you know, run over. And the, the level of anxiety and depression that is taking over not just our youth, quite frankly, everyone right now in business or, or not. And so my advice is, you know, obviously listen more than you talk and be really, really good to people. But it's critical in 2017 as we're about to head into 2018 that you take care of yourself in both your physical and your mental wellness because it's impossible to do great things without it. True. Well, Mark, I, I can't thank you enough uh, for your time today and your insights and learning more about your, your what I'd call amazing career. And I really appreciate the time. I uh, want to thank you again. I hope our paths cross again at some point in the future. And I want to thank GPG Advisors for sponsoring. So thanks again, Mark. I appreciate it, Scott. Thank you.